Well, let me tell you this before we begin. This is my favorite subject, talking about lifelong learning and all that we do together. So this should be fun. Thanks for tuning in to WNL After Class. I'm your host, Ruth Candler. Today is an unusual and exciting podcast for me for two reasons. First, it's the 30th episode of our Lifelong Learning Podcast. We have enjoyed four seasons of great conversation with WNL's expert faculty. The second reason I'm excited about today's conversation is that it's with Rob Fury, who has been Washington and Lee's Director of Lifelong Learning for 42 years. Rob has also been my boss for a little over four of those 42 years. When he announced his retirement, it seemed a natural fit to have a conversation about his work the mission of WNL's Office of Lifelong Learning and the years leading up to where we are today. Rob retires from the university after 46 years, having arrived at WNL in 1977 as an English professor. He, he served his current role since 1981 when then President Huntley authorized the creation of what was called the Office of Summer Programs. The Office of Lifelong Learning currently offers a diverse array of educational programs for alumni, parents, and friends of the university. These initiatives include our virtual programs like the podcast you're listening to right now, our alumni college series, uh, three weekend seminars during the academic year, along with our summer programs, and WNL's very popular travel program, educational tours traveling around the world. Listen now, and, and I hope you enjoy one more conversation with Rob. Rob, it is an honor and an absolute joy to welcome you to WNL After Class. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So we're recording this conversation on a very monumental day. While you don't officially retire until June 30th, today is your last day in the office. How are you feeling? Well, I must say, um, it's a little strange to look at all these empty bookcases and now to gaze into uh, empty drawers and the space on the wall where my clock used to be. Um, I'm excited uh, about the next chapter, but of course I have a lot of feelings about what I'm leaving behind. I'm sure. Well, I've known you for quite a while. I'd like for our listeners to learn a little more about you. You were an Iowa boy who eventually got a PhD from Berkeley. How did you get to WNL? Yes, I, I often tell my friends that my values were formed in Iowa. Uh, I did have an Iowa boyhood, uh, which is baseball, cornfields, and family trips in a Pontiac station wagon. Um, as a boy, I f my family, of course, uh, followed my father's career, and much of it was spent in Iowa. Um, I did go on to high school in suburban Chicago, 
and then to college in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Um, I was fortunate at the end of my college career to have a choice between two very fine graduate schools. Um, I, I chose Berkeley over Harvard because of the weather, basically. Um, <laughs> I wanted to live on the West Coast. Uh, I liked it. it. This was during the, the late 60s. So an exciting time to be young. Uh, and Berkeley was a hub of a lot of uh, social and political uh, ferment, but it was also the best graduate school uh, in English literature at the time. And so I was, I was very fortunate uh, to do my graduate work uh, in Berkeley across the bay from San Francisco. I was also fortunate at the end of that long period uh, to get a job. Uh, during the uh, 70s, uh, there was a PhD under every rock in America, probably because of the Vietnam War. Uh, a lot of people went to graduate school. Um, the, um, and I, I got a job in the perfect place for me, um, a small, excellent, liberal arts college um, that gave me an opportunity to teach at all levels of the curriculum. Uh, it's true that the chairman of the department was fond of reminding me that I was one of 600 applicants wow. uh, for the job, um, but I was able eventually to ignore that kind of warning. Uh, I loved teaching. I enjoyed my students uh, very much. And I had some terrific opportunities. It's interesting tracing my background in Iowa that when I came to Washington and Lee, I met uh, Clark Mullenhoff, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who was teaching in the journalism department. He heard that I had grown up in Iowa and he said, let's have lunch. So one day we went out. Um, Clark had earned his uh, Pulitzer Prize working for the Des Moines Register. He asked me where I lived in Iowa, and I said I lived in several different towns, but most of the time I lived in Webster City, Iowa. Webster City, he exclaimed, <laughs> that's where I'm from. Webster City is a town of 8,000 people. Wow. So we talked about Webster City, Iowa and the Daily Freeman Journal, which he used to write for and I used to deliver as a boy. And he asked me where in, um, where in Webster City did I live? And I said, I lived on Boone Street. Said, Boone Street? I lived on Boone Street. Whom did you know on Boone Street? So I said, well, I knew the, the Schraders and the Vances and Sheriff Lear lived down the street. And he says, well, we knew the same people. Where did you live on Boone Street? And I said, I, I lived at 840 Boone Street. He says, 840 Boone Street? That's where I lived. We lived in the same house, and we went out to lunch because we were from the same street, uh, same state. That's bizarre. Um, yeah, la bizarre. Later that year, we were at a Christmas party together. Uh, there was a visiting professor, law professor from the University of Florida, who brought with him his wife, who was Sheriff Lear's daughter, who lived down the street on Boone Street. So <laughs> yeah, small up. world. Small world. Small world. So. Um, while I was at Washington and Lee teaching in the English department, I was, I was fortunate to 
uh, be selected as one of four faculty to teach in a, in a program that led to the next stage of my career, which was lifelong learning. So let's talk about the early days of the Office of Lifelong Learning and how the office evolved. Would you tell us about the first program and how that developed into the Alumni College series? Well, I, um, l let me tell you a little bit about how the office uh, was created. I was teaching in the English department, as I mentioned, and I was very fortunate to be selected as one of four faculty by the president uh, at that time was Bob Huntley. Um, we were we we were we put together a two-week program, a summer program in the humanities for corporate executives, a very unusual concept in terms of ex executive development. This was Shakespeare and Plato and Herman Melville and Robert Frost for corporate executives who are moving from policy, who are moving from fairly narrow technical backgrounds into policy making or policy advocacy positions. And we had a program that would give them two weeks of literature and philosophy. In other words, a healthy dose of ambiguity, um, which they may have missed in their college or graduate educations. I was one of four faculty. Uh, two were from the English department. One was from religion and one was from philosophy. I loved that teaching experience. As you may know, teaching is a lonely enterprise. But this was teen teaching. I worked with three brilliant colleagues who were superb in the classroom and just great fun to be with. I was also teaching, quote unquote, adults, very bright people who represented, in my view, a lot of life experience, life experience that I hadn't had, and brought a lot more of intelligence and experience to works in literature and philosophy that we were discussing. It was an exhilarating experience for me. I did that for a couple of years uh, and then came up with an idea um, that we could do more of this sort of thing, summer programs involving teen teaching along with adult audiences. Uh, and I put together an administrative structure for a new office that would pursue that kind of educational experience. And to my surprise and delight, Bob Huntley said, well, you thought of it, you do it. Here's an office, here's a, a secretary as we called them back then. Um, and while you're doing that, we have an increasing number of summer programs, conferences, sport camps, there was a summer scholars program. That's a program for rising high school seniors. These programs needed a kind of administrator. And so he said, if you would do that, you can play around with some new ideas for programs such as you're describing. What fun. And so that was 1981. And that was the birth of our on-campus programs. 
How did that lead to the development of our travel program? Well, the travel program emerged from our alumni colleges. Uh, I created, the first program I created was the alumni college, and that was from in 1982. Uh, that program was successful at the very beginning. Uh, here again, it, it was a, a program in the humanities. We called it Changing Views and Changing Times. Um, the program was so popular that we had to close the door at 40 people. We thought that would be the maximum we could accommodate. And so the following year, we had three alumni colleges. And the year after that, 1984, one of the three programs that we offered was Elizabethan England, a program with the art, literature, and history of Elizabethan England. While we were doing that program, we thought, why don't we actually go to the place after we have taken this or produced this course? So we got in touch with someone, an alum who is involved in travel, um, and he put together an itinerary for us. We offered it to the people who were in the alumni college campus experience. Most of the places on that trip were taken by the people who had attended the summer campus program. And so in 1985, we did our first trip, the alumni college abroad, we called it back then. Again, we had a full enrollment, so we thought, this is a great idea. Let's do one of the alumni colleges every year. We'll focus on an international destination, and then we will go to the country the year after we have that program. Well, it was successful year after year. So by 1990, uh, five years after that first program, uh, the alumni director at that time said, you seem to be having a lot of success with these travel programs. Would you like to do all of the trips that WNL offers to alumni? And I agreed to do that, and I said, but all of them are going to involve, uh, be educational. It's educational travel. We're not going to do golf trips. We're not going to do shopping trips. We're going to do programs that focus on the history and the culture of the destination. And it's likely that we will have a faculty member travel with our alumni. And he said, well, you've had success with it. Uh, I'd appreciate it if you took it over. And so since 1990, we have done all of the alumni travel programs for Washington and LA. So the office has gone through several name changes over the years. Tell us how it evolved from summer programs to special programs to lifelong learning and the significance of that in, in terms of its focus and its mission. Well, obviously, uh, since we were offering travel programs, we were, we were operating all year long. It was not just activities that occur in the summer. We also expanded the alumni college to include weekend seminars. It began with a weekend seminar in theater, taking advantage of our uh, theater department's uh, schedule of plays. That 
quickly morphed into other weekend seminars. The first one was a law and literature program. Later on, we developed, uh, in response to the class of 1951, a weekend seminar featuring literature by current writers under the uh, rubric of the Tom Wolfe Weekend Seminar. Later on, we created a program, Institute for Honor, uh, Institute for Honor Symposium, again in response to a particular class, class of 1960s gift, uh, to hold that weekend seminar every year. So from summer, we came, we, we moved to the Office of Special Programs. Later on, it became that the burden of administrating all of these programs in lifelong learning uh, became rather more than our staff could handle comfortably. So the university created an office of special events that would handle sport camps and conferences, programs outside of our main portfolio, which is educational programs for alumni, parents, and friends. And so the title of the office was changed one more time to the Office of Lifelong Learning, and that's what we are today. Thank you for bringing us up to date on that. You know, you have a story that I think really illustrates how our lifelong learning programs can evolve. Would you share the story of Alexei Yablokov? Oh yes, that's a that's a, a very pleasant memory. Um, when we were also administering conferences on campus, we served uh, one year a conference organized by the Fish and Wildlife Service. It's a government agency. Uh, they chose the campus of Washington and Lee uh, to meet, and they were bringing with a number of fish and wildlife experts from the United States, uh, they were meeting with a delegation from the Soviet Union, a delegation headed by a man named Alexei Yablokov. Uh, he was a scientist, an ecologist from the Soviet Union. They met here, and during their two-week conference, I got to know Alexei Yablokov, and I asked him, he spoke perfectly good English. I asked him if he would be willing to return to Washington and Lee the following summer uh, to help us with a program that we were already organizing on the history of Russia. And he, he said, I, all I need is a letter from you and I, I hope I can get permission to come back to the United States, but I have to have an invitation. So we went through all of that administrative uh, process and he came back, and he was a wonderful addition to our faculty, helping us understand the history of Russia and the Soviet Union that day. Well, during that year, there was a lot of turmoil in the Soviet Union, and as you may recall, it finally dissolved in 1989. But he was still able to come to campus. And so the following year, when we went to Russia, again, following this model of studying on campus one summer and then within the coming year, going to the country of interest, we went to Russia. And while we were in Moscow, he invited us to his Kremlin office 
Yes, he had an office in the Kremlin because he had become Yeltsin's Secretary of the Interior. That must have been a very surreal experience. It was a going into the Spassky Gate, you know, getting through all that security clearance and then going up to his Kremlin office. And while we were there, something amazing happened. We went to his inner sanctum, the big office. We each had a bottle of Pepsi-Cola because that's what they gave people as refreshments. <laughs> no, no, Pepsi. And we looked at a map that he had on his wall, a huge wall-sized map. And on that map were several large black dots in Siberia. And we asked him, what, what did those signify? He looked at us and said, Chernobyl was nothing in comparison to the areas of the Soviet Union, the areas of Siberia that were permanently uninhabitable because of nuclear waste, nuclear dumps. So that was, it was not only a sort of diplomatic, uh, friendly uh, meeting, it was an eye-opening experience to some of the fa problems facing Russia today. Yeah, and you know, you could read about that in a book, mm -hmm. right? But but Standing in yeah. that location and mm -hmm. experiencing that firsthand, which has been amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I, I mm -hmm. never get tired of that story. I want to turn back to uh, the first alumni college program that you mentioned, Changing Views and Changing Times. Uh, you mentioned that it was such a hit, it sold out quickly. You had some WNL legends on your faculty team at that time, and I thought it would be fun to take a walk down memory lane for mm. our alumni and have you share some yeah. of those names. Well, that, of course, was the key to the popularity of the program. The faculty that we had teaching in that program were giants. Sidney Cowling, Bill Jenks in the history department, uh, Len Girard in psychology, along with uh, some younger faculty, Tom Nye in biology, and John Handelman in politics. Five faculty who, who worked hard with me in organizing a program over five days that would focus on changing views and changing times. They were superb, uh, and they gave us such a great launch that we've used all of those faculty um, since many, then. Yeah, many programs. Yeah. In fact, I had the, well, Sid Cowling, of course, was chairman of the English department. So that gave me the exquisite pleasure of hiring my former employer. <laughs> <laughs> Getting a feeling for how that, how that goes right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he, was, he was wonderful. And I, I took Bill Jenks and Sid Cowling on trips uh, even Lynn Gerard. Uh, so they, they helped us both with campus programming and also um, our travel program. Oh, thank you for sharing those names. I'm sure you put a yeah. smile on many, many faces of They're alumni. wonderful people. We've used the motto, a good education is a habit of mind. Why is lifelong learning so important to our alumni and the university? Well, that motto, may defy understanding, but think about it for a moment. What do you really get out of a good education? You get a continuing desire to learn, an intellectual curiosity that is inextinguishable. So I think the motto, 
is apt for lifelong learning. We assume that people who attend our programs have a college education. They've had a good education, certainly, if they've attended Washington and Lee. And so we naturally assume they want to continue exploring history, literature, the arts, uh, social issues, political issues, but they want to do so with expertise, the expertise that we can provide through our own faculty and those faculty from other institutions whom we can invite to campus uh, to facilitate uh, that continuing adventure and learning. Let's take that a, a step further. Why are these types of immersive educational experiences, whether they involve traveling abroad or bringing the world to Lexington, why are they such an integral part of our mission and what are the unique benefits of this approach? Why do we, why do we offer these programs to people? Uh, we, we want them, first of all, we want our audience to experience the university again firsthand. The university is the university faculty. That's, these are the agents of learning, of education. We want our alumni to experience the faculty today. Uh, of course, they remember fondly uh, their professors when they were students here. But the university faculty is always evolving, and it has been a wonderful growth at this university. We have a superb teaching faculty. It's not primarily a research faculty, although most faculty do research. But the faculty who teach here are still here because they are proven to be good teachers. And we like to show them off. We like to make them available uh, to our former students, but also to our parents. I'm a college student parent. Uh, my daughter is, is going away to college this fall. And I, I'm curious about the people she is going to have in the classroom. I would like to have more experience with those people. I'd like to see what it's all about. What is teaching and learning at Vassar College? This is where she's going. So I, I know that curiosity, but also as a lifelong learner myself, I want to continue the adventure however I can at Washington and Lee or anywhere else that gives me that opportunity. Well, thank you, because one of my questions was to ask you about the benefits uh, to, to WNL parents, so I appreciate that. I want to bring us back to faculty, though. Some folks may be surprised to know that faculty development is also at the heart of what our office provides. Would you describe the professional development opportunities for faculty through our programs and how they've evolved over the years? Now, I'm glad you asked that question, Ruth, because it takes me all the way back to that conversation that I had with Bob Huntley in 1981 when I talked, I did, we discussed this idea of a program like an alumni college for our faculty and what I had learned through teaching in the Institute for Executives. He said that the principal benefit of these programs will not be fundraising, which is odd to hear. It will not necessarily be alumni relations, which of course there would be a 
benefit, but the principal benefit, he said, would be faculty development. What a curious notion that somehow this audience of adult learners and this opportunity to teach in a team rather than all alone would help faculty develop intellectually, uh, would help them develop deeper understanding of their subject through discussions with people who had abundant life experience. That has certainly proven to be the case. Faculty line up to teach in alumni college. Uh, they enjoy the experience of teaching with their colleagues, of, of, of discussing subjects in history and literature and philosophy and the arts with people who bring so much more to the classroom uh, than typical undergraduates. They bring life experience. That is healthy. Uh, you've heard me say before that, that teaching is a lonely enterprise. Uh, you're all alone with your students. But if you are working with faculty from other disciplines, working with other informed perspectives as you consider uh, a work of literature, for example, or uh, an era of history, it is deeply enriching. I remember that one of those years, and I was teaching in the Institute for Executives, I taught the, the Shakespeare play Antony and Cleopatra, which if you know uh, the play, it's essentially about an office romance. Antony is messing around with Cleopatra instead of running the Roman Empire. In my class, in that Institute for Executive classroom, there were executives who knew exactly what Shakespeare was talking about. They had seen it. They had lived it. They knew the hazard of messing around with a Cleopatra, but they also knew the allure of it. That's what I mean by life experience brought to this, this, the topic of literature. So perhaps an, uh, an undergraduate student wouldn't have that life experience. Um, exactly. I mean, of, of, what are the principal themes of literature? Love and death. When you have an adult in the classroom, they have lived that experience and they have things to say about it a lot more than young people. Well, thank you for sharing the origins and the history of the Office of Lifelong Learning. I'd like to turn our focus a bit and talk about you. You have accomplished much during your tenure here at Washington and Lee. As you embark on your retirement, what are you most proud of as you reflect on your career? Well, I, 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 I don't think about that very much, um, but if if I have to, th I, I think I'm very proud of the service that we have provided to our constituents, our alumni, parents, and friends. I'm very proud of the service we've provided to our faculty, giving them new kinds of teaching opportunities, uh, getting better acquainted not only with their colleagues here at Washington and Lee, but with expertise outside of the university. Uh, whether it's from other universities or from the alumni uh, sector itself. I'm also proud of, of what we've done for the university. 
we have a, nas a national reputation in lifelong learning. Many universities call us uh, for ideas in lifelong learning. But we've also helped the university build new relationships with alumni and parents. And I, I think that's, that's been healthy. It's a lot to be proud of. Yeah, this is a relationship business. Yeah. And I'm happy that we've had a lot of success building and strengthening those relationships. Well, you've traveled to all seven continents. And I think it's easier for me to ask where you haven't been <laughs> than where you have. Yes, I, I've, I've been to all seven continents and over a hundred countries. I've traveled a long way beyond Boston. Uh, <laughs> as an American literature professor, I didn't think I'd get beyond Boston, but uh, to my surprise and delight, I, I've been around the world a few times. Haven't been to Mongolia, haven't been to New Guinea, haven't been to the stands, you know, Pakistan, mm -hmm. Uzbekistan, but there is not a single place that I would not happily go back to. I have had a splendid education through my career of lifelong learning. It has helped me to see the world, to understand the world better, and above all, to share it with others. It's a great feeling. So Mongolia, New Guinea, or the stands, are any of them on your bucket list? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think there's a reason that we haven't been to those places <laughs> quite yet. Certainly the stands. Right. It's a little dicey these days. A little days. bit, a little bit. Well, yes. I've heard you describe your fascination of different locations around the world. And Rob, I may have even heard you contradict yourself once or twice on what your favorite is. I contain multitudes, mm -hmm. so I contradict myself. Uh, I think I know the answer, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot so that you're on record. If you had to pick just one destination as your favorite, what would it be? You're asking me to choose among my grandchildren, Ruth. Mm -hmm. It's very, very difficult to do that. But let me say this. Um, I have been to Egypt eight times. There's a reason for that. I have been to, on a safari in East Africa almost as many times. I have been to Antarctica once, and I am looking for another opportunity to return. Uh, the, the beauty of Antarctica, the vitality of that continent with its teeming with wildlife, but also the vividness of the history of Egypt, the Nile kingdoms preserved by the desert, and the astounding variety of wildlife in East Africa, along with the human culture there. Uh, endlessly fascinating. Uh, I've, as you know, I've just returned from a, a private family safari to East Africa. And it's where you met your wife. Yes, it is. Um, uh, my wife and I promised each other that one day we would return. Uh, and so for our 20th anniversary, my wife presented me with this trip. And how wonderful you were able to bring your children and your grandchildren. Yes, two children and two of our grandchildren came with us. It was splendid. So this may or may not be the same answer for you. 
But if someone were to ask you to give them one place in this world they must visit, what would you say? I think, um, I, I guess I would ask them to take a chance and visit where it all began, which is East Africa. There, there is something about the fenceless immensity of the Serengeti, something about the purity of that life, that atmosphere, that landscape, that is transformative. There's a reason why people go back. Once they've been, they go back to East Africa just to breathe and to see that wonder, the, the splendid horizontals of the place and the diversity of the wildlife. It's, yeah. I recommend it. I hope that we continue to offer a safari at least every other year through lifelong learning. It's a wonderful experience. You know, it's funny when I was, when I was contemplating these questions and I, I played a game with myself, I really thought you were gonna say Egypt. Mm. <laughs> Another good reason. <laughs> yeah, yes. So you, you've spent your entire professional career at Washington and Lee and all but a few of those developing educational programs for alumni, parents, and friends of the university. What do you hope for your legacy to be? Well, I think the legacy of this office is assured by the great staff we have in this office. I didn't pay you to say that. Just no, it's, it's true. <laughs> I mean, that's the, the, most, the, the most critical decision an administrator makes is staffing. And we have a superb team in this office. And frankly, that's, that's another reason that I'm a little sad to be leaving because I've so enjoyed working with the people in this office. And I look forward to the, to the new era, uh, the new director, um, and I hope that the legacy of relationships that we have built over the years with alumni and with our parents, friends, as well as the staff here at Washington Lee, will assure the continuing vitality of, of this enterprise. It is really the best job in the world. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm. Uh, <laughs> this is my last day uh, in the office, um, but I'm still working until June. 3rd. Oh, I know, I know. Okay, so in a few hours, you're going to be walking out your office door for the last time. You once told me that I am keen on getting the last word. In honor of your retirement, I'd like for you to end our podcast with parting words for our lifelong learners. Well, <laughs> um, how about this? It's not very profound, um, but my parting word is, um, see you later. Uh, I, I am a lifelong learner and I live two blocks from campus. Um, I'm going to enjoy um, coming to campus. Uh, I hope I will be able to attend the Alumni College if I sit in the back row. Um, we laugh uh, with duct tape on your yes, mouth. Yes, with duct tape over <laughs> my mouth so I don't say anything. 
Um, I, I, I've told you this is a relationship business. I want to continue to see the friends I've made in these programs. And I want to continue to know these wonderful teachers that we have on our staff. This is a wonderful place. Uh, and I'm not leaving. I'm just not getting paid. <laughs> um, so uh, I think the best thing is, uh, best thing to say is, I'll be there. I'll see you later, and let's keep let's keep on doing this.